Welcome to the Farcast, bringing you insights into Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It's the 11th day of January 2024. 2024. Have you written it wrong on your checks yet? Uh, I have not, actually. I stop and pause, and it takes me a while, but I've managed. Did anybody write checks anymore? Uh, probably not, but I've had to sign some things. And I and yeah, I've had to write a couple of I've had to write a couple of checks too. 2024. You know, when I do that, it reminds me, uh, I think, very healthily of the cyclicality of life and certainly the cyclicality of the markets that don't always coincide with our calendar years, but it gets cold every winter, it gets warm every summer, and markets do what they've been doing for the past few months. They go up unexpectedly, they rally uh, furiously, ferociously, and then they pull back a little bit. And then you get to find out what comes next, because what happens? You get an earnings season. And our start, we really get banks starting in here tomorrow. So by the time you're listening to the forecast, you're going to be hearing about the banks. And we're going to see if they're above their skis, uh, out over their skis a little bit. We're going to see if they're taking any uh, more reserves to the reserve requirements, if they're, if they're going to withhold a little bit. Give us an idea of what they're seeing about credit. In general, the banks have had a pretty good rally, folks. So when you see stocks as a group that have had a pretty good rally, you expect that they will stop and pull back. And traders will take those excuses, any little sign of weakness, to take some profits. And that's not the end of the world. And that's not the end of a cycle. That's traders being traders. So don't ever let a trader being a trader get you distracted from being an investor. Got it? Don't let the traders being traders distract you from being an investor. The economy is still expanding. Is it expanding faster than the Fed wants? Maybe not, not on an expansion. Is inflation running hotter than the Fed wants? Yes. Is it running hotter, uh, you know, so that they're gonna keep raising rates? The answer seems to be no. While Wall Street's focused on the Fed cutting rates, I'm not quite as sanguine about that. And maybe a couple of cuts and maybe later in the year, but anything in the first quarter makes no sense to me at all. Not that the Fed has to make sense to me. I'm just telling you it doesn't. So here we go. Earnings season. And by the way, uh, final note before we get to my dear friend, Jim Labenthal. I'm delighted and thrilled and so relieved that we're finally getting into earnings season because finally we have some substance to focus on in the markets as opposed to all of the noise. Give me some numbers. I'm tired of the noise. Here in the fish market, I want to look at the prices. I want to ignore the yelling and the screaming. And a lot of that yelling and screaming, by the way, yesterday had to do with Bitcoin and whether they were going to have ETFs and who released what. And who cares? Nobody cares. Doesn't make a difference. Jim Labenthal is a partner at Serity Partners, a CNBC contributor, a voice of reason during good times and bads, and my, and my great friend. Hey, Jim, welcome back to the Farcast. Michael, thank you. Happy New Year. Uh, now that I'm appearing for the first time in 2024 on the Farcast, I can now officially retire the saying, Happy New Year. Uh, I am, however, delighted that I've made the cut for a return to the forecast in 2024. Uh, Thank you for this high honor. It's one that I hold dearly. 
Uh, It is a high honor that you join us, uh, as someone of your position and renown and experience. So we're grateful. Jim, you were right about the rally last year. You were right about the surge, uh, the rip-off-your-face surge in the fourth quarter. Um, Just a terrific rally. What are you seeing? What do you think? Uh, Hey, Jim, uh, were you a little surprised at a 24% S&P 500 year? Huh, come on. Well, you know, that's a great place to start because it did not feel to the average investor. It did not feel like a 24 percent return. Right. Right. Most people that I speak to, and by that I mean professional money managers, most people were happy with a mid to high teens return. And by the way, that's fabulous. In an absolute sense, that's fabulous. But just about everybody came out of 2024 feeling lousy, feeling terrible because in order to get that 24% return, you had to have a weighting to the Magnificent Seven technology in general that most managers didn't have. And I'm not going to justify it. I'm simply just saying most managers did not have that weighting. And so they came out with returns that were fabulous in the absolute sense, lousy in the relative sense. And for that reason, despite eye-popping numbers, most people that I talk to, and I'm certainly speaking about myself, are happy to put 2023 behind us and move into 2024. Yeah, it was very, very hard to match anywhere near the index return. A lot of the increase in share prices was not driven by an earnings increase or a surprise earnings increase, but rather multiple expansion. Stocks became more expensive, not driven by fundamentals. Now, earnings expectations for a bunch of stocks went up exploded like nvidia exploded and if they meet those earnings expectations maybe those stocks aren't stupid expensive but there's a lot at stake here so jim when you look at a rally like that and you see these indexes and stocks trading near all-time highs and you think about 2024 what are you thinking about what changes to your portfolio what are you telling your clients yeah, good good question because you know here we are as you said 11 days into the uh trading year there is an echo of 2023 in the most recent rally this week in in tech stocks and Nvidia in particular and uh as I said to you just before we started the show I'm I'm finding that theme tedious uh that theme being the magnificent 7 that theme being technology leadership and I I don't think that's what the theme is going to be for the calendar year 2024 I think the biggest change, and you did refer to this, is the fact that we're talking about Fed cuts right now. When you do that, that means that the Federal Reserve and its actions are no longer the most important force in the markets. It is, as you pointed out, it has to go to earnings now. Earnings has to support the rally that we saw last year. And most importantly, it has to support the broadening of the rally that we've seen since November 1st. Um, so I am delighted to get into the earnings season. You know, you mentioned the banks earlier. I don't think anybody is expecting fireworks there, but they always give an, an insight into the health of the economy, into things like credit losses, delinquencies, loan demand, that sort of thing. So I don't look at those earnings reports, which are about to come out, as so much interesting for the individual names and stocks, but yes. for what they foretell about yes. the economy overall. And frankly, yes. on that note, I think we have to just admit the economy is very strong. Labor market is strong. People are employed. They're spending accordingly. 
Um, sure, there are some slowdowns and things like housing, but that's starting to look like it's bottoming. If you look at uh, mortgage applications this past week, they're showing an uptick that reflects the lowering of interest rates. So there is reason to put 2023 behind us, put the Fed behind us, put the Magnificent Seven behind us, and get to a more normal economy, which grows at a modest but healthy pace, and a market rally that broadens to include far more than technology. You know, Jim, some of our listeners will uh, have written in and they say, you guys talk about the Fed a lot. You talk about the Fed a lot. And I, and I have trouble really relating that to my portfolio and the decisions I make. Folks, we're going to keep talking about the Fed a lot. And I'm sorry to get, and we hope we don't get wonky. But the cost of money drives a whole lot of economic activity and whether companies are successful or not. And on the one hand, while I agree with Jim, I don't agree with Jim. Because I think one of the biggest sea changes this year is when the Fed actually shifts its its stance, its actual activity in terms of monetary policy. When that Fed starts to cut, that typically begins a period that will last a while, whenever they do it, and money gets cheaper during that period. So when you look at areas that haven't done well as an investor, I'm, I'm thinking of things, and these aren't recommendations, but I'm looking at things and saying, you know, when interest rates go down, actually, those high those tech stocks tend to do better because of the way people price those future earnings streams uh, at a lower interest rate and in their calculation of discounted cash flows. Home builders that haven't done well in a lower interest rate, rate environment, perhaps with a dearth of supply, things like that. So I'm looking for these larger shifts that I think can be the big thematic drivers uh, over the next year. And you look up, I think we'll, uh, it's very easy to look up after a period like this when you're sort of getting nervous about the reasons that are feel negative at the time when the Fed actually does cut to the point when you get through to the other side and you get through to the other side and say, well, we should have seen that coming. Jim, what do you, you want to uh, go ahead, argue with me a little bit and then Tell me what you think in a year we're going to wish we had seen coming, and then we got to go, believe it or not. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, Mark, I'm going to argue with you only a, a little bit, Michael. Um, let me start with your, your word choice. You said when the Fed shifts, when it pivots, and yeah. that implies a, a future tense, and I'm going to say they already have, uh, meaning, okay. and this is what I was saying about the Fed is no longer, in my opinion, the primary force in the market. We're now talking about when and by how much they're going to cut. We're about will they cut? Um, I think that that is a tone change in the markets that's that's vital to acknowledge its its magnitude, because what it really means is now you're in a position where good news is good news. Like if you get a strong labor report, that's good because the long and lagged effects of the Fed are not biting as much, as opposed to if this were six months ago, it would be bad news because it means the Fed's going to keep rate hiking. So the fact that we're not talking about rate hikes now means that, in my opinion, as far as the market is concerned, the, it has already shifted to the Fed is not as important as it was. But <clears throat> here's where I'll be a little bit more provocative and neither agree nor disagree, but just take a different tack. I, I think we will all acknowledge that <laughs> it sounds like you're giving congressional testimony. Go ahead. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But no, this is this is not false modesty. This is true, true modesty, because the last four years has been unlike anything we've seen. Yes. And I mean, just as an example, the fact that the Fed raised rates 525 basis points and were not in a recession 
is stunning. stunning. And, you know, as much as I believe that would happen, I can express surprise that that yep. didn't happen. I didn't think when they started, I didn't think they would raise that much. Um, things, I, I know this is dangerous, but things have been different the last four years um, because of the pandemic primarily and its effect on supply chains and labor hoarding and things like that. So when I hear you and you are speaking accurately about history, that when the Fed cuts rates, that tends to buoy technology stocks. I have to, with modesty, with humility, say, oh, God, this is dangerous. I think it's different. I think it's different right now. And it's not just what I said about the pandemic. It is about the market response over the last two years, which absolutely pummeled economically sensitive, i.e. non-technology stocks, to the point where their share prices are ridiculously cheap and the cash flows have been so good at these companies because there's no recession that they're buying back shares in droves. And you can look at General Motors, you can look at CVS, you can look at Qualcomm, you can go down a long list of companies where they're doing what any investor would want. They've had great results, their share prices have languished. So they've said to hell with you stock market, we're gonna take advantage of this and buy back our own shares in size. So I know dangerous words. This time's it's this time it's different, but there you go. I've made my bed. We'll see how comfortably I lie in it. Uh, you've been pretty comfortable for the past uh, year and a half. You were very uncomfortable for the year before that, and you were getting hammered. So I'm I'm uh, I'm very glad and very proud of you, and very happy to see you uh, get so much right. Though I haven't seen enough egg on the faces of others who were so critical of you. Uh, <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, I know. They, they, they get to skate. You know, uh, years ago, it made me think of, of something someone said to me that I thought that I've loved. Um, I was at a breakfast with the vice chancellor uh, from Sewanee, and he paid me a compliment, um, as they do when they're trying to get money from alums. And he paid me a compliment, and I said, "Well, thank you very much." And and I, um, I've been very fortunate. And he looked at me oddly, and he said, "You know, I can't tell whether it's true humility or false humility when you say it, but I suppose, in the absence of true humility, false humility is fine." <laughs> which, I, which I love, I love, and I thought, you know, that's right. In the ab why not? In the absence of true humility, take false. I'll take false humility all day long. Beat the hell out of the alternative. <laughs> Let's just try not to have too much egg on our faces. And Michael, you know, and I know that uh, this business, there are times where you just, you have it. You have egg on your face and how you carry yourself at that moment matters far more than when you're getting it right and trying to pat yourself on the back, whether with false humility or not. You ever need anybody to pat you on the back, you call me. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Labenthal's had it right. He is a humble guy and he's a very smart guy and he's a guy you want to listen to. Thank you, Jim. I'm blessed to have you as a friend, Michael. Thank you. We're going to come up back with Dan Mahaffey, the man, and we're going to find out what's going on in Washington and what's going on with these elections. And we're hearing Greg Valliere says, the Biden White House people say Biden is running with enthusiasm. Is he really? When we come back on the forecast. Thank you for joining us this week on the forecast. Now it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, 
Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. That was terrific with Jim Labenthal. And now, the legendary Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, soon to be from the Dr. Scholl Foundation in Chicago. So we're very happy to see you, Mr. Mahaffey. Welcome. Thank you. Happy New Year. Good to talk to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right. Mike Johnson, is he going to make it or not make it? He's Uh trying to get stuff done and things look dicey for the speaker, although he seems to be certainly more popular than Mr. McCarthy. And uh, we're hearing from Valier, hey, Biden's running. You're going to have a Biden-Trump race. Get over it. What do you think, Dan? Well, I'll start with the Speaker Johnson, and I think it's Groundhog Day for those of you who are tracking McCarthy. And shockingly, just because the calendar has changed digits, the uh, vibes on Capitol Hill haven't, even with a, a little vacation getaway. We've seen the rebellion now by the more conservative House members on this uh, proposed budget deal. They are uh, voting against the rule, which is as close as they can get to shutting things down without trying to vacate the speaker. And I think Johnson at least holds on to the speakership because one, no one wants to go through that process again. And two, it allows them to keep the house open for some of these other things, namely the Biden impeachment hearings, but it allows house business to continue even if the legislation they don't like is frozen. So that's why they're going to vote for the rule. And then likely you're going to see Johnson move Uh, the spending deals uh, like his predecessor had to and like he's had to move the defense uh, budget earlier. And that will be with the Democrats helping him. Uh, He has even fewer votes now, only a two-vote majority with with retirements and uh, special elections pending in the House. So he's only got a two-vote majority among the Republicans. So for now, I think you see that the, the, the pattern continues but no one wants to go into an election year uh, defenestrating the speaker like they did last year. So does he survive, Dan? Is the big that's, question. Yeah, that's yeah. He survives in this limbo. What what good is that limbo for a speaker? I mean, can he get any? He, he survives, but nothing happens. It is survival, and nothing. And, shut and down. He's basically going to have to do these deals because he understands, unlike some of the other colleagues in in the House. He understands that he's in the weakest position as the Speaker of the House in a two-vote majority with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president. And that's just the the legislative reality is the hand he has is the weakest, and therefore these deals that are coming down to but keep government stays, open. He stays, he of course. Stays. So, no, there's no, again, because I don't hear anyone with the appetite to go after him and vacate the chair particularly, as I said, when they can use these voting down of the rules to block business and and have the same effect of stopping some things while not going through that whole process of shutting the house down again. We're just going to live in a world of CRs? Yeah, basically. And that's, that's interesting now, too, where you even have the, the conservatives who screamed about a CR earlier in 2023 some of them are now advocating for it because they actually want a year-long CR because that would now trigger the spending penalties under the previous deal. So having not gotten their uh, budget cuts one way, they now want to invoke the penalty uh, provisions. So that's another uh, track to follow. But I think, again, this deal between Schumer and Johnson 
uh, will hold. Johnson will just again, uh, like McCarthy did on other things, need Democratic votes to get this through. But he doesn't get he doesn't lose his job when he gets that done. No, I don't see that happening. Okay, all right, all right. That's that. I find that encouraging only because it adds stability uh, to uh, our government, and I think it's been a very unstable period. Um, I'm not picking sides, folks. There. You know, well, and, I have and, my and the, re the reality too is that you open this up with a two-vote majority, you're several ballots away from Hakeem Jeffries becoming speaker. That's that's the other thing about this reality. So there's very clear both political and practical reasons for uh, keeping Johnson as speaker, even if not happy with him. If you're not happy with him, well, we'll see how that that goes. But uh, I, I, stability, I think, has got to be considered a good thing. That was, um, I want to see a debate, some political debate sometime in my life, again, that is not cringeworthy, that is somewhat dignified, that has moments of humor and where people make points about policy. And I just am never sure that I'm ever going to see. I know my expectations are probably unrealistic, but DeSantis and Nikki Haley sitting there throwing food at each other yeah, just it, was so unseemly. And I don't think it got either one of them anywhere. And I'm wondering why in God's name they did it. <laughs> yeah, I think the best way to say that is um, I know good political debates and that, sir, was no <laughs> good political debate. <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, I'll give I'll give you that one. Who is that? Lloyd Benson. Yes, sir. Lloyd Benson, who yeah. who who did that to Dan Quayle, and yes. just took Dan Quayle's legs out from under him, and it didn't matter. Dan Quayle became vice president of the United States. So yeah. not bad, folks. It's not a great bad. quote, but it reminds you of the utility of the vice presidential debate. Well, the vice presidential debate, exactly, uh, yeah. or the vice president at at, <laughs> exactly. at all. I mean, during the Reagan administration, he, he had George Bush. President 41, one of the most wonderful guys I, I got to meet. Uh, you know, they called him uh, George, you die, we fly Bush, uh, because all they did was send him to far, a funeral. Yeah, fun funerals and ribbon cuttings, as I was told. Yes, that was it. That was it. That <laughs> but was it. no, that, yeah, that's and so that's going to be the thing. I think that's a good segue to what we were talking about with Biden running, because uh, one, the question for Haley is, is she running to win it or is she running for vice president? Those are those are two open questions right now, uh, although I don't think Trump would even go for her for the vice president, given his emphasis on on total loyalty uh, in his team. So Haley and, and as Valier says, get comfortable with the the Biden Trump rematch. Uh, yes, uh, I think that's still the most likely one. Uh, Haley, though, now has this very narrow avenue if she if she's competitive, uh, you know, top three in Iowa uh, and then can perhaps surprise in New Hampshire uh, with Chris Christie withdrawing and some polling suggesting that Haley is within single digits of Trump now in New Hampshire. So I'm not closing the door on her, but this is also not a, you know, a, a, a gap in the door you could barely fit a piece of paper through. So she has a chance. There's there's a pathway for her. But again, politics can be surprising and people should understand that this the path is there for her, but it's not likely. OK, here's far as prediction. You want to see something coming up here? The Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination. He calls Nikki Haley uh, the same way he did Mitt Romney and says, come and see me. And they have to go and bend the knee and he gives them nothing. 
and he gets. Oh, I, I think that would be exactly right. And then uh, Elise Stefanik, Carrie Lake, or, or Kirsty Nome is is named the vice presidential nominee. Yes, yes. Uh, you need uh, you you and and you need someone in that job uh, for on that ticket that can bring a state can bring a state uh, and appeal to the Christian conservative right. Mm -hmm. Uh, that has to happen. Um, so I'm sorry, folks, you need Mike Pence an address. And where is he going to find him? Um, but that's what he needs. Uh, certainly somebody who is, except he needs somebody going to be more, if you can imagine, more loyal than Mike Pence. That's what he wants. So we'll we'll see if that happens. Biden, you know, we, we, we've had we've had the predictions before. So let's uh, let's Let's move. Um, I was thinking. Well, I, want, I want to add one thing you said yep. to Biden, though. You, you talk about Valier saying, yes, Biden is running. Biden is running enthusiastically. Uh, sure, I've heard some on the political side trying to emphasize enthusiasm. From what I hear also, I hear a lot of frustration. Uh, frustration that the messaging they feel is not getting through, that the economic story is not being understood by the voter. Uh, that the programs they've put in place, why aren't they being uh, sold by their surrogates or other Democrats? So there's, there's. I, I would just add alongside, uh, and however you want to predict how this will motivate how they go about this campaign, uh, you are seeing frustration growing too among the Bidens. Well, you know, uh, by the way, folks, uh, here's a little more inside Washington. Anytime you ask the White House people and staff of any incumbent, if you talk to the staff of any governor of any state about their upcoming reelection, will they do this and that? You're going to have those folks sing from the song sheet and they're going to tell you, yes, he's running and yes, it's going to be great. And yes, he's up to it. And yes, his mental acuity continues to impress people and he has town halls and blah, 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 blah. They're going to give you the sales job. Uh, we also saw Gavin Newsom meeting right with Bill Clinton and uh, they're not they're not sitting there saying, how do we get Joe Biden another four years? Right. They're trying to that that the, the subject of that meeting is what do we do about Joe Biden and who can we run that so that Trump loses? Because Nikki Haley, by the way, in polls, beats Biden hands down. Trump does not. Trump, it's a close race. Uh, mm -hmm. So what do they do? If it's uh, who can who can beat Trump? So he, what we're saying is he's not strong uh, there. So uh, it, they need somebody stronger uh, is what they're seeing. Will they do that or not? I think they are trying to figure out who would be the standard bearer if, again, this whispering campaign of does Biden withdraw? You, you accurately point out that, again, you are enthusiastic up until the very moment of departure. Yes. Uh, that said, the talk around Newsom, and obviously you saw him handle that uh, debate with DeSantis on Fox News. This uh, Newsom has been elevated as the the clear alternative, much to Kamala Harris's chagrin. Uh, that said, <laughs> frankly, Newsom, if I recall, does just as bad in the polling, uh, if not worse, against Haley or or Trump. So Newsom is not a viable political contender, at least right, right. now. Um, right. So much of that, though, again, depends on, you know, there's been no campaign to elevate him, no process to really introduce him. Um, but, uh, you know, frankly, I, I would I would push back against this as a strategist, just that 
if anything, California would be one of the most polarizing states to be coming from on a national stage. It's nowadays like running the governor of Texas, running, you know, DeSantis. I think it was a headwind for DeSantis coming from Florida to the rest I of the country. I can't remember if it was George Will, but the line that I loved was that Gavin Newsom has been the best governor that Texas has ever had. Yeah, basically that. Because because he's been he's he's been such a bad governor in terms of anybody with money. They've all left and moved to Texas. And sure. so they got all these rich people moving into Texas and the Texas economy is going great. And the, well, uh, until the company decides they have to leave Texas because of some law or statement that that governor's made. So that's my my opinion is that you you got to look for these states like, you know, Yunkin in Virginia or or Whitmer in Michigan, where. Uh, where the politicians actually have to do their job because they're competitive states, and then you therefore have a more compelling candidate, I think. Dan, I was thinking about being um, Bibi Netanyahu, if I was sitting in his job today. And if, if I'm Netanyahu and I'm looking at this uh, and I'm looking at this war, uh, here's what I've got to, here's where I've, the line I'm straddling. I I want, I'm going into Palestine and I'm hitting him as hard as I can and I'm being as brutal as I can so that I can get this over with faster uh, because I want it over with and I can deal with the heat of the brutality and the criticism of the brutality as long as I get rid of Hamas and they're gone. If I slow down and, and sort of placate the calls for a greater humanitarian push, then I've got to endure longer and risk not accomplishing. So mm -hmm. I don't see the downside really if he is really determined and Israel's really determined uh, to keep up this rather brutal attack. What am I missing? I think the only layer I would add is the one that is far more personal to Netanyahu, which is he is thinking, how long can I go and who do I lose the support of first? The U.S. government or my right-wing coalition partners in the Israeli government? What's the uh, answer? What's the answer? That's, he can't keep up the war at this rate and continue to keep U.S. support. The tone on the Democratic grassroots among Democrats in the Biden administration, they're pressuring him to change this. Now, the problem is if he loses his right-wing coalition partners, he triggers an election he's likely to lose because yes. of the unpopularity uh, of his administration, his reforms, and then October 7th. And then he faces, uh, again, his court cases and possibly uh, jail time. Netanyahu has very many other personal concerns and political legal yep. concerns tied up in this. And we we got to go, Dan. G give me just five seconds. What's China doing with Taiwan? They're there. We got balloons flying over. They're picking up. Uh, they're, they're yeah, they're trying to pressure this election happening. as much as possible. Everything is up in the air until the ballots are cast. The tensions will grow, but I don't think the Chinese have the appetite to invade now. Dan Mahaffey is the director of policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, a Washington, D.C. think tank. Also, the senior political analyst on the forecast, soon to be chairman. Vice Chairman. Joel Foundation. Don't what? promote me yet. Vice Chairman. Don't. Oh, Vice Chairman. No, I'm just going to call you the Chairman. If the Chairman okay, gets well. mad at me, tough. Uh, the Chairman, by the way, has been mad at me before, so <laughs> I'll go with that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Mahaffey, we're going to be right back with more Farcast 
and figure out what's going on with this market coming next year. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We appreciate you listening into the Farcast this week. And now to introduce this week's special guest, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. It's the 11th day, 11th day of January, 2024. Earnings season gets underway tomorrow. We hear from the banks. We we know what Labenthal said, and we're going to be looking basically at what they're saying about credit, what they're saying about credit and whether they're going to add to reserves, because what the banks tell you gives you an insight as to what's going on in the economy. And we're going to be listening very closely, I think, for those uh, commercial real estate loans, particularly the office real estate loans, that uh, right has been the Achilles heel of the commercial loan portfolio, will probably continue to be as we work through whether we're working from home or whether we need as much office space. This is a supply and demand question at its crux. And how do they pay for the debt they have on all of these buildings is something we're going to hear from some of these banks. It's exposure in a lot of different portfolios. It's not major across all commercial real estate, but it is significant. And this is one of those things that when you have a problem with something, it might not be liquid. And in order to meet some other requirements, you might have to sell something else. So it can put a little pressure on markets overall. If you want to talk to an expert's expert on markets and one of my greatest friends over the years on Wall Street, Tony Dwyer is the guy, folks. He's the guy, head of U.S. Macro Group and chief market strategist at the Canaccord Genuities uh, Group. Th this is the guy. And when you want to find out data, real data, what's going on, what has happened, let's not make it up. Let's get it right. You talk to Tony. Hey, Tony, welcome back to the FAR. Uh, that is, that is far too nice, Mike, but thank you very much. I'm t uh, okay, nice, but it ain't wrong. I promise. Uh, we've we've known another long time. Tony, what are you seeing as the markets are making new time all time highs, basically? And we've got the magnificent seven going nuts. Last year was a big surprise for most investors. What are we telling them about what we've been through and what you expect for 2024? Well, and it, it's interesting, Mike, because the prior year was the opposite. So we've we've been totally. Talking about, you know, if you're an investor over the last two years, cash has been king. Now, if you if you picked, I think we've done a pretty good job of making some trading calls when the market gets into an extreme oversold territory. But this has been a very dicey environment because you've had this zombie situation where you you've had this economic vi uh, volatility and slowdown at times. You're not sure if it's alive. You're not sure if it's dead. 
you know, it's a there's still the idea that there could be a recession. I'm I'm in that camp, uh, partially because bank lending has been so weak. So the the volatility around the data has been extraordinary without going anywhere over the last two years. Uh, so I'm I'm hesitant, <laughs> Michael. We've been doing this a long time. I I wouldn't lie. To you. <laughs> but let's say just for giggles, I came up and I I said to you, Michael, did you see my new haircut? It's yeah. really, I can't believe I get to part it on the left. Yes. And you look at me and you're like, obviously that's a lie, right? But then, so would you listen to me on my next statement? You would listen to a known liar on your statement. And I would say no. So when the market was going down 33% from peak in the in the Russell 2000, the S&P was down 27. The S&P was pulling back. Um, 10-year note yields were up over 5%. The market, people were saying the market's telling you inflation is going to be a problem. The 10-year note yield is going to tell you it, it could go to 6%. Stocks right. going down is telling you there's a problem. You right. know what they were telling you? A lie. That yes. was the time to be a buyer. So yes. now that it's up and you've had this extraordinarily uh, extraordinary move higher, you're believing the liar on the next statement. Like, I don't know that we can differentiate what the market's telling us because it's been so volatile over the last two uh, last two years. So long-winded answer to the question, but I think it's really important that listeners understand that we're not in a day and age anymore where active fund managers are the drivers of the markets, which means it's, you have a different outlook of what what how it moves and why. In my in my opening monologue this morning for the forecast. I said there's been a lot of volatility and traders and algo or algos are driving this short-term market. And yesterday was a really was a was a big update for uh, for a lot of stocks, big, and we've bounced back and maybe we're pulling back. And this is trader-driven driven sort of activity, and the headlines revolve around traders, and the news, business news revolves around traders. Don't let the trading narrative distract you. From being a long-term investor. Long-term investors don't care about all of this short-term noise. Long-term investors don't give a damn about whether Bitcoin has an ETF or not, and shouldn't in Farr's opinion, because it's not an investment, folks. It's a speculation at best. In Farr's opinion, but I'll give you a shot at that one, Tony. You agree with that or disagree with that? I, I will. I don't know enough about Bitcoin. <laughs> I, my only real view of Bitcoin is I find it hard to believe that it'll ever become a currency only because it would it would um, make all the primary currencies. If you default to primary currencies, it's a levered world. Yes. That well, would mean that interest rates would spike. So I don't believe any of that. The one thing that all the global central banks agree on is that it's not a currency because if it was, it would default those currency, those primary currencies, and you would have you know, financial catastrophe. But I, I really don't have an opinion on Bitcoin. The only, the only, you know, the opinion I have on what you just said, though, is very, is very clear. Like, I, I grew up in the business where you watch the tape because you, that's yes. how you know what people do. And yes. that doesn't exist anymore because it's algos and quants and systemic traders that are moving it day to day. Now you even have the the zero date options that have been rumored to move it at certain tail events. So when you look at the market and you say, wow, that's it's doing this, how come? I'm careful to step back and say, okay, wait, wait a second. Is that actually, am I looking for a reason for the unexplainable? 
yep. is, is what, you know, and that's unfortunately the financial media as well. So what do you do in that world as an investor with the new noise, with the inability to really gain transparent a transparent view of what's going on underneath because there is all of these all of these new things and algorithms that are putting trades in by the millisecond what do you do as an investor how do you how are you looking and what are you telling your clients at the beginning of 2024 tony so mike we have five fundamental thesis points core fundamental thesis points that have never changed and i've learned by all the mistakes that i've made which are many yeah. and it is number one the market correlates with the direction of earnings full stop that Period. is driven. Number two, yeah. that's driven by um, the economy. Number three, that's driven by um, money availability. Num number four, that's driven by Fed policy. And lastly, that's driven by the core PCE, because that's what the Fed says they use for inflation. So inflation drives Fed, Fed drives money availability, money availability drives economy, and economy drives earnings. That historically is what works. So where are we in that? And as you know, I've called this a zombie economy. And, and that's because the money availability has been historically weak. But each cycle brings something that's a little bit different. And what yes. I'm blown away that the shutdown in bank lending that you even yep. referenced yep. based on, I mean, it shut down. Yes. Jamie Dimon has talked about it. Um, bank lending largely shut down for the last two years. So how is the economy with the markets not raising any new capital, the equity capital markets uh, and the fixed income markets up until the last few weeks have been dead as well. So where are you getting that money availability? And in this cycle, it's been the private credit market. Over the yes. last 10 years, you've taken private credit according to the, those that are driving it from zero to a trillion and a half dollars. So if you've shut down, how have, how have you not seen a bigger economic retrenchment over the course of the last year without any lending and money availability. Yeah. And it's those guys are stepping in. And yeah. that is a new source of capital. I don't know if it postpones it or what it does to it, but here's here's our current view. Um, for the last two years, as you, I've kind of known as a permable historically, but that's because people forget I'm a perma bear when the money availability is weak. So for the last two years, I've been largely on the sidelines, only using trading opportunities into extreme oversold conditions. Like in 22, the summer rally, the year-end rally, the October 27th uh, of last year, we put out a piece, you know, this is some of the ones I get right, I get many wrong. Um, our, uh, we put out a piece called the stage is set for rally. I've been a renter of stocks, Mike, for the last two years because the money availability has not been there. Yeah. Now, based on what the Fed's dovish pivot did to the credit markets, the outlook for money improved. You had a 200 basis points improvement in high yield um, debt yield. You had uh, the treasury market rallied significantly enough to cause a mortgage market improvement. Yep. So the outlook for money has improved. So what do you do with that? It's kind of discounted. Yes. So I'm not chasing the market here. It, it's hard to do that. I want to attack weakness. And, and that's the same opinion I would have given you two months ago. Now, right. the difference is back then I would have told you I wanted to rent stocks because the outlook for money wasn't great. Now I want to own them. So when you do get that pullback that I'm expecting the intermediate term correction, rather than renting it and looking to sell it on a rally, I'll buy them and hold them for the rally and further. Long winded answer. Sorry, buddy. No, no, no. A, 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 a very, a, a really good answer. Um, you know, Tony, uh, my 
second book, which I still think was the is the best one that I wrote, was called The Arrogance Cycle. And it and it talks about the emotional cycle that basically where everybody wants to rush and get in at tops. And when you feel like you're bulletproof and the danger in how you feel when it comes to investing, it's the one thing you really shouldn't ever do is feel when you're making investment decisions. Just don't feel when you're making investment decisions, it, it, which is impossible, right? Which is impossible. But I also talked about bubbles in that book uh, because it, it made sense. How do bubbles form? Bubbles form with two things. Uh, a, a certain optimistic mania, number one, but it has, they, everyone was funded by debt, by credit, by leverage. You had to have leverage. Going back to the tulip bulb crisis, uh, there was leverage. Uh, they, were, they were borrowing against their homes to buy tulip bulbs. People hear you say that and they go, they weren't borrowing against their homes to buy. Yes, they were. And people lost their homes on tulip bulbs. Futures, tulip bulb futures. They didn't know what this was. I mean, amazing stuff. So one of the things I look for when and listen to, Tony, when you say we have still leverage in the availability of money, and we saw this in the banking crisis, and we saw credit default swaps and, 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 and all of these other sort of side portfolios and things and areas of credit that we didn't uh, know were going on. I, I remember back then saying, well, that they did those transactions, Mr. Farr, in the sieve. The banks were using sieves. Tony, it was 2008. I didn't know what the hell a sieve was. I've been in this business forever. What's a sieve? What's well, a special investment vehicle? And it's several billion dollars, but it's an off-balance sheet item for the banks. The banks have billions of dollars in off-balance sheet things for a special thing that they're getting leverage in? How the hell does that happen? How is that legal is what I was thinking. So I'm wrapping it up, Tony. No, that's, Come back that's good. To your one and a half trillion dollars, okay, in private credit, a new market that's exploded here and grown. Is there a potential for a bubble? I'm always trying to keep an eye open for where the next bubble might be forming because they're always a surprise, aren't they? Well, I, I would use the entire private market. That's where, where's the money going, Michael, over the, over the course of the last, 15 years, the biggest explosion in, in finance has been in the private, the venture market, the private yes. equity market, now the yes. private credit market. All of them are unregulated and levered. Now, where does that money come from to go there? Well, it's come from public equities, from pension plans. If you're a pension plan and endowment, why would you ever invest in 7% return in, in domestic equities historically if you can get a 12 to 15% return in the private markets year after year after year and not have to go through what we talked about originally, which is the volatility in the public markets. So that, is it a bubble? It, you know, we use that term too easily, I think, as an old guy, I, I think we use the term too easily. Um, but there is an extraordinary amount of, of pension plans that are now 50% in illiquid private instruments. And that's great when things are going up. That becomes a challenge when things are going down, because if you have to pay out the benefits, you're going to need to sell something to get it. So I, what it does do, though, and there's, there's no question about it, that money is helping buffer what would have already been, I believe, a catastrophe. If you took, uh, if you look at those, just... Two days ago, I saw that um, that one of the major 
um, private credit firms was raising another $2 billion in secondary private credit. That means the yep. primary private credit went bad and needs to be sold by somebody. Otherwise, why would they buy, create a secondary fund? So this whole thing is kind of, it's lengthening the whole process. And we're in, a, I, I call it a microwave market in a slow cooker economy. We look at it like <laughs> I every love that. ticket. A microwave market in a slow cooker economy. You know, my private equity guys who really did very well in private equity 15 years ago, 15 years ago, started telling me 10 years ago, hey, Michael, there is so much money that's come into private equity. They're pricing the hell out of these deals, meaning there's so much yeah. demand for them. The good deals that we get are so ridiculously expensive. They're putting values on the future values of these companies that are ridiculous and they're paying for them because they've got to get the money invested because until they get the money invested, they don't earn their fees. And they're just shooting. I mean, they're, they, they, this is a scattershot approach to investments, hoping that one of them hits. And uh, it, it is it is kind of scary. I think it's a well, real- they all hit because it was a, it was a well. So now they need to exit these companies, right? So if you're a private equity or a venture company and you've owned something for three to five years and your business model is built on constant turnover over time, you build it up, you do a great job advising a new company and you create a better value for it. And then you've got to somehow sell it. But if you're not selling it to another private equity, which to your point has been the case for the last 10 years, and you need to go public, here's the problem. The values there got so high, you're going public at a worse valuation. You know, we saw that a few months ago um, where one, one company went out and took a $30 billion hit to go yep. public from its, hot, from its prior private raise. So the issue becomes how, if in this private world, What's your exit strategy going to be? And and I think you need a public market. You need an equity capital markets business that's open where investors like yourself can go in and say, God, I got to own that stock. I want to be a partner in that company. Um, yeah, but that's, that's where that's, we are in the market. The valuation. That's rational, time. Tony. I haven't seen that happening, right? I haven't seen that because you don't, the public markets will really scrutinize before the public markets commit their money, ideally. And they haven't had that opportunity. You have this seven-year cycle in private equity, right? It's a seven-year cycle. They take your money in from the investors, and they've got about seven years to turn it. Maybe they extend it to 10, but they've got to turn that money. And what they've been doing is selling it to other private equity folks. I know of two right. deals right now. Bain's been in one of them for seven years, and they're selling it to another private equity, and they're getting the new hair price, and the other private equity's getting their money to work in the Bain deal. And Bain's a good one, right? So I'm watching another one, a big one, do the same thing, and they're selling to another one. This, to me, strikes me as like the Treasury Department selling bonds to the Federal Reserve. I mean, uh, who who is there? Is there actually somebody who's going to step in and demand value for their money? And that's that's what we, you and I, go back to and say that is healthy capital formation, and that is the role of capital markets in an economy. And as you say, it's being thwarted and we're out of time. You got to give me your final thoughts on this. And I'm so happy to talk to you. And, and I don't know what it means. Here, here's what it means. Okay. Remember our core thesis. Yes. Private credit doesn't change that. If there's availability of money, the markets will be okay. Yes. And there is an availability of money and it's still coming in. So you know, how do we migrate for now? How do we migrate 2024? 
And in our view, I don't think you chase a 24% gain, for example, in the Russell 2000. I think you buy a pullback when it comes down again. Because what the market's how much of a pullback do you need to see, Tony? Because I mean, we get these three percent pullbacks, and people get excited. Oh, I want to buy it. What are you looking? Well, it depends on our indicators, Michael. I don't do it based on price. I don't think price matters. We we know now for sure that active portfolio managers are not driving the business because more so much of the market has gone into passive management for the for the viewers or listeners that means into ETFs and and uh, S and P index funds. So if a yes. company is going into or an investor wants to buy the market, they buy an ETF or a passive investment. They rarely give it to active inv investors anymore, which means that you know what you do is is it for. Uh, investments doesn't really drive the market. It's money flow versus your fundamental view of something. So yes. ultimately, I don't know that price. I told we used the, the the story before. I I don't know if I should believe the guy that just lied to me about my hair parting on the left. Right. That's the so the issue is how much if you pick a level that means the liar is going to be right. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think I still have to default back to human nature and I wait for my indicators to get oversold enough. So I don't know that it's a 3% or 5% or 15%. I think it's a, I think it shows up in the indicators at the time. Like it did in October. Listen, you know, I've been pretty cautious in October 27th. You know, we're fortunate enough to put out a pretty good trading call because human nature got so extreme. And that's where I think you wait for stuff like that. Tony Dwyer reminding everybody that he has a very clear discipline, far telling you that you should too, whether you like his, whether you like mine, we're not that far apart, Tony and I, over the years, uh, but we have a discipline and we follow it and we take the emotion out of it and we really try very hard not to believe the liars again. Tony Dwyer, thank you so much. Happy New Year and you're wonderful to be with us. Happy to be here, Michael. Thanks for the invite, buddy. Happy New Year to everybody. That's it for another forecast as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, bringing you experts and insight to better understand your investing world and the world around you. Certainly, my happy help with that this week. We'll be back next week. Do it all again for our producer, Harry Jennings, everybody at Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors. Thanks so much. Please share us on your social media. From Naples, Florida, I'm Michael Farr. That's a wrap for this episode of The Farcast. Please join us next week when our scheduled special guest will be Dana Peterson, Chief Economist from the Conference Board, with information on their new CEO survey of economic conditions. Thanks to this week's guest, Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Tony Dwyer. Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and comes to you weekly for free on all major podcast platforms, including Google, Spotify, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. You can stream past episodes as well as subscribe so you never miss a new one. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week on The Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and a CC-registered investment advisor. 
Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farmiller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farmiller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farmiller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Far Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.